Hi, you're listening to the New Space India podcast, a bi-weekly talk show that exclusively brings insights from the Indian space activities ecosystem. I'm your host Narayan, the co-founder of India's first space-focused think tank, Spaceport Sarabhai. Guests on the New Space India podcast help you understand space activities related macro and micro trends within India in all aspects including space history, local industry, space science, technology evolution, law and policy, art and more. The New Space India podcast is supported by Dassault Systems, a global leader in providing businesses and people with collaborative virtual environments to enable sustainable innovations. Dassault Systems Solutions supports startups, small and medium scale enterprises and original equipment manufacturers in developing disruptive solutions for space launchers and satellites. Hi and welcome to yet another episode of the New Space India podcast. And today we have here Farhan uh, who's the inventor of India's first satellite which was privately built and launched on a SpaceX rocket. Farhan, welcome to the show. Hi NP, um, it's a pleasure and an honor to be here on the podcast. Been following it for a long time, probably from the podcast number 1. So, um, yeah, and uh, great to be here and be connecting with everybody else on the podcast hi good day to you guys whatever time it is in your zones thank you so before we dive into the topic of you know satellites and space and everything else i know that you've been done a lot of different things in life at the end uh, unlike you know most of us where we're focused only on space bits at the end so would love to hear from you your own early days because i know that you know you're probably one of the only people i know in india who kind of can go down to the basics of electronics you know components connect that back to software you know connect that back to systems level stuff do product design from a baseline component level to then realizing the whole products at the end so would love to hear from you you know what got you actually into getting into that frame of mind because you know it's not very something that is very easy to get into at the end so um i was actually lucky to have a bunch of people around me all the time and uh, probably by design or by fate and luck uh, who were interested in making things and in you know doing things and stuff like that so um i mean my family actually has very little of science in in them right so i mean most of them are professors of history or literature and stuff like that but many of them also worked on the all, in all india radio so I used to tag along, and that actually was—I um, you know, mean, I was really fascinated by the fact that you know, uh, voice travels through nothing and gets to the other side. And I struggled for a long time, from my fifth standard onwards, to make a radio transmitter, and it didn't work, of course. Okay, I had no idea of how to go about doing that. But then one day, I mean, uh, this is one of those weird things that our school had a very funny policy that every teacher was also encouraged to pursue their interests so for example a geography teacher was a radio ham a class teacher was a good bowler and he actually coached our team a hindi teacher actually did theater with us so you know stuff like that so this vice principal one day walked in with a complete ham radio set and set it up in our physics lab and i was completely blown that you know here i was struggling to get a toy transmitter going from one room to another and these people were you know very casually speaking to somebody in bombay gujarat bangalore and then you know uh 
they even got somebody from germany they said i didn't believe it because it's on more more scored so you know <laughs> i don't know whether they're fibbing or not um but that actually so i'll just latch on to that group of people and i stuck with them and i'm you know even till till date i am you know in touch with that crowd so um among the things that they were doing there were these rumors of some of them who were able to go through amateur radio satellites and i didn't know much about that at all um and what happened was that there was this local club here the andhra pradesh amateur radio society and they had a shelf of books and i just keep rummaging through it to see if i can you know get hold of something or the other because there's no internet there's no tribal knowledge too i mean most of these people were basically using battered old world war 2 radios and somehow got them going so you know uh very good and committed people but they didn't have much of electronics knowledge and one thing which i managed to extract out of that entire pile was an amsat bulletin okay which uh, had uh, a description of uh, oscar 7 and oscar 8 and it basically said that you know these are the frequencies on which it you know comes up so one of the oscars which is oscar 7 also had a beacon in hf in high frequency okay at 29 megahertz and i happened to have a radio which could actually you know get on to that frequency so i tuned on to that frequency although my antenna was not meant for that frequency and whenever i was home the volume was cranked up and the frequency was tuned and i just sit hoping to you know catch it and in about 3 4 days time i actually managed to you know <laughs> catch it catch the beacon so there's no prediction i didn't have prediction software uh, but i realized that it's a polar orbit and the next orbit will come around the same time the next day but it didn't come at the same time it came about you know 70 minutes later and then i realized that it keeps shifting also every day so it was a very you know uh, intuitive sort of a feel i got that you know the passes keep shifting by 70 minutes every day and a new pass appears on the other side which also keeps you know then again shifts back in the time scale so you knew that between 8 am and 10 am you would have these passes and if the pass happened at 8 o'clock today it will happen at you know uh, 9 uh, 10 the next day and so on and so forth and then the most, the other important thing was that the passes would be longer if they were at 9 am because otherwise they were glancing passes but i had no idea of this so but it was really exciting to get a signal from space right so uh, then you know i had to uplink there's no way to uplink you know i'm just a 14 year old 15 year old kid and stuff like that so we scrounged around and all that and there were other hams who were able to get through so what they did is that they took these uh, vhf walkie talkies and sort of hacked it out to generate just a constant wave instead of frequency modulating it then managed to you know somehow pull the frequency out because in those days the walkie talkies didn't have pll they were all crystal controlled uh, managed to ground a crystal down to this frequency and you know get it up so uh, it was a very hands on way of getting on to satellites and being able to you know hear your own echoes uh, but what happened was also and this is the amazing part that apart from getting the beacon the beacon was actually morse code and in morse code they gave out the telemetry right 
and uh, eventually i found out the format of the telemetry through someone and we would start you know copying this down and note down the telemetry and then translate it back back because it would basically give numbers out right so you knew that channel 1 was battery voltage channel 2 was you know uh, solar panel 1 2 3 6 etc so when i was about 16 years old or 17 years old not just me but you know a lot of my friends you know amar and uh, others we knew how satellites you know live so to say that you know as the satellite tumbles there are voltages which keep going up and down the battery keeps going up and down you know the morning passes because it's just coming out of the eclipse uh, the battery is going to be low okay etc etc so i mean this is really really fun things that we figured out about the about these satellites and these satellites would die right and when they would die they would basically you know keep coming down with battery and then one day they would go away so you have to hang in there with you know better antennas better positioning etc and this is all being done manually okay so the no computers there were no computers it's not that we didn't have computers there were no computers so uh that actually gave a whole lot of us and you know these people still are around uh, a very intuitive hands on tribal sort of knowledge of the low earth orbit satellites what keeps them up uh, how do they manage right so i mean they, they would have these bulletin boards coming up you know saying that the satellite is going into eclipse for the, for the next two weeks don't operate etc so what is this eclipse business you know there's no solar eclipse happening so you sort of figure out all this stuff so that actually was a big grounding that i had for subsequent work with satellites and then at that point in time you know i mean you'd always imagine what would it take for us to make our own satellite and that was not something that you know i ever imagined that we would you know a bunch of us sitting here in hyderabad and bombay would be able to pull off but um, there was an opportunity of you know some alignment of stars that you know got that opportunity and we managed to pull that through yeah always fascinating to hear uh, all of this right because uh, today i see that I don't know if you consider ham to be kind of a dead uh, hobby today among youngsters or it's a generational thing because I guess you know people the whole hobby probably got ruined by smartphones at the end. Well it's it's actually good that it, that happened uh, because what happened is a lot of people came into this hobby as a way of you know talking to people for cheap avoiding the STD charges those people have gone away. But the hobby is pretty well and alive last month from hyderabad 100 people applied for licenses just last month okay and this is every two months there are new batches coming up so the thing is this that the interest in tech stuff and i'm not talking just about ham radio is mostly coming from c and b towns the city folks are have no need to you know investigate these things i mean the curiosity is sort of died i don't know why but that's a separate discussion to have at some point in time but i see that there's a lot of stuff that these kids come up with want to do okay and uh, you know they see a radio they say okay i need to build this you know how can i you know buy this or build this or you know you tell them the, about satellite stuff i mean for example the exceed sat itself many of the people of the team came from you know towns in orissa you know berampur and here and there etc so actually there is a fair amount of uh, very uh, 
interesting folks who are coming not just into ham radio as hobby but even electronics right and basic electronics and embedded stuff etc so when you you know we talked about being a ham and uh, growing up and everything but i don't know that you know you did other things in life of course before trying to build uh, exitsat uh, would love to hear a bit about you know your own professional journey and building companies and uh, everything else yeah so basically what happened was as i said that you know i i am a great believer in guru shishya parampara okay and um, i happen to have had some really fabulous mentors and i always look for mentors and you know go and become their disciple so to say <laughs> much to their embarrassment so um earlier on you know when i was in engineering second or third year i ran into this really amazing guy called arun kumar uh, his call sign was v2 oscar zulu and he was actually part of the original aryabhatta team and uh, he was a radio ham and he basically instilled the stuff saying that you know i mean my friend raju who's my colleague now right now sitting here uh, he was also a good friend of arun and arun would say that you know it just take on really ambitious projects and somehow throw himself at that and get it through so this entire hesitation of you know free fear of failure was something that uh, arun asked us to you know throw away so he in 81 i think 81 or 82 decided that we are going to build a telescope to see halley's comet and we are going to build a 6 incher and he would every day you know sit and gr- keep grinding this glass 6 inches wide got it going uh, he used to run a computer company here in those days just 8 bit computer cpm computers so he took stepper motors out from floppy drives and made a full azel tracking system out of it uh, and the entire code was written on a 6800 not 1000 6800 microprocessor in about 128 bytes because that's the only memory which is available there so he was really you know a huge influence on uh, me and i worked at his place and my engineering project under him was to bring up a complete 8 bit computer with an operating system called cpm so that was the first thing that i did and out of there um, i was basically a hardware guy okay i didn't know much about uh, software and i thought software is for sissies right i mean this is people who just stuff sit down on computer and write boring stuff you know the i mean real men work with soldering irons or some <laughs> it's a fancy notion that way um so um but what happened was that as i said that my family has been into literature so um one of the things that we came across was the fact that urdu language did not have Uh, a typeface and that is because urdu was cursively written and it was cursively written with lot of patronage coming in from kings and nawabs etc so it was a very very evolved uh, cursive thing which is almost like you know calligraphy it's calligraphed right so um out of college i was doing working at uh, with arun in integrated data systems but you know i thought that this was something that we could crack and i met a calligrapher who had sort of you know half figured out how to do it so we tried implementing it on computers and uh, in those days for example there was no font designing software so you had to design the font on autocad uh so you write all these tools to translate that into you know rasterize them etc because there were no vector fonts in those days there was no laser printer so managed to convince someone to import a laser printer and then you know learn to write 
you know directly to the binary to the laser printer using hp laser printer driver you had to write etc so that was actually fun project and that actually taught me to program okay and this is very tight space you programming to an 8088 with 640k ram and you had to stuff a complete graphical user interface a text editor with urdu fonts you know english fonts it, this is going right to left that's going left to right and i had no idea when i wrote the software i had no idea of what a linked list is of what a tree is and um, i joined mtech in central university here and the first class was on data structures and <laughs> blew my mind i said oh god there is something more than just arrays that you can use as a data structure so uh, you know i grabbed that book okay sahani i remember and i said okay this is the book for me right and this is going to be my future so um i became pretty good at c i think you know i mean I, for me c is as good as english i can just sort of you know visualize stuff and see before i even sit down to write stuff so i got uh, the urdu software going and that actually then from urdu it jumped into vedic sanskrit because vedic sanskrit was very difficult right it's, it just doesn't go you know uh, left uh, left to right it goes you know top down as well because of the you know the conjugations which happened there so did that uh then that business got sold off to cdac cdac acquired it you know lot of that code is in their uh, dtp software i don't know whether they still sell it called ileep so they integrated into that then i was part of the iski uh, standardization committee the indian standard code for information interchange which was for indian languages so i actually took part of the persian arabic scripts in it which were lot of indian i mean it's not just urdu Uh, Sindhi is written in that script. The old Punjabi is written in that script. Saraiki is written in that script. So we did that. Ninety-eight, uh, I sold that off, and then I took a hiatus for a couple of years. And then in nineteen ninety-nine, um, a friend of mine who is also my chartered accountant, um, he had got a computer with wow, a sound blaster on it. Okay, so you could actually record sound. so um, and being a radio ham i said okay so you know you've got these computers networked here probably i can record the sound on this computer and you know take it off to the next computer so that actually spun off from being a lab curiosity of an intercom to being a complete voice over ip uh, service which uh, ultimately spanned about 70 countries you know we had some i mean Yeah, clients in seventy countries. It was the Asia's largest voice over IP network, and this was before they standardized on the protocols. There was no protocol. There was H three two three, but that was actually a video conferencing protocol that some people had to get going with voice over IP. I was part of the ITF work group, which was doing the SIP protocol. In fact, ours was the first SIP protocol, the ref the reference implementation of SIP, uh, which is the you know, standard protocol for IP telephony. we did that it's still there on the home page of sip so that happened in about year 2000 2002 2003 uh that business continued for a long time but there wasn't much that i was doing there because i had written the code and you know had moved on and that acquired got acquired in 2008 then again i took you know a couple of years off uh we're sitting here in lamakan so we started the cultural center because you know it's really interested in culture so we did that and uh, then you know i was having a fairly happy and uh, peaceful existence until mahesh called up one day and said uh, why don't we do something with technology and we'd like to you know i'm starting a venture fund would you like to be a partner there and that's i said yeah you know i'd love to do that i didn't know that you know we'd ultimately be running our own company 
And at that time, we were looking at a lot of companies, including yours, right? Uh, Dhruva, we had a lot of discussions with Dhruva as well, uh, and a lot of other guys. And that was pretty exciting to me. And I, I kept telling Mahesh uh, that, you know, yeah, it's, it's not so difficult to actually build and launch a satellite. And I think we have to do that to see how this industry works and whether it's really, you know, achievable at all or not. So he said, okay, in that case, let's, you know, float a company and, you know, do this properly. So that's how, you know, the ExceedSat actually came into, I mean, the project got started. Right. I remember actually, I mean, I think it goes back now seven, eight years or more from all of this. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons why we started through our space, uh, you know, me and Sanjay, is we saw a, a gap in the market actually saying ISRO is building all of these big satellites. And there's a shift towards smaller satellites and, you know, there could be niche applications that can complement these bigger satellites. Right? And it's taken a while for some of this ecosystem to come through and, you know, form and, and so on. It's still forming as we speak, I guess. But I guess we were at the very, very early stages and... Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, a lot of businesses get killed because they're too early <laughs> on the curve. There's nothing to do there. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thought and something that I think about almost every day saying, are we still early or not in India? So what do you think? No, I, I think uh, in the last three years, India is too late now, really. Okay. Uh, I think that, I mean, you know, because I've, I've been scanning the market, looking at investment opportunities, etc. Right. So, for example, if you look at the launch costs, they've really plummeted. Okay. Uh, some really good friends are still, you know, looking at launch vehicles and investing in them or, you know, building launch vehicles. But, you know, really, if you look at the, what SpaceX is going to offer in terms of, you know, launch capabilities, except for uh, you wanting some really weird orbits. Okay. But for that, if it's a standard orbit, it'll be very difficult to beat People like SpaceX and SpaceX are not the only guys who's, who, who are going to be doing this, right? Everybody from Electron onwards will be doing this. Um, so I think that market is sort of gone. Second thing is when we are coming to building spacecrafts themselves, that is space missions, right? Whether they're satellites or otherwise. Uh, I think, um, I hope it's not too late, but I think that, you know, we uh, just wandered around trying to get a policy in place. And that's really affected us badly. I mean, you know, there's no way you can get frequency clearance. There's no way you can get flight clearance. You know, you don't know which authority to uh, you know, explore at all. So what will happen ultimately is that a lot of subcontracting will come to India. But I don't think that the value will be built here. I mean, you know, for example, if you think something like Starlinks could be done here, impossible. Because, you know, you just don't have those sort of clearances. All that could be done here very easily. Uh, you know, a lot of these constellations could have been done from India. But, you know, we, we've just sort of missed the bus. Yeah, I mean, I think there are pockets. Of course, we can talk about this later uh, in the episode. But then would love to hear from you on your journey of conceptualizing ExceedSat1 and then, you know, looking at the architecture of the satellite itself and why you chose to do whatever you chose to do at the end. And then how did you realize it, the journey of the realization of the satellite itself? And then, you know, going towards launch and operation. Yeah. So, okay. It's interesting. So, uh, this will get a little technical. So, you know, I hope our listeners <laughs> bear with us on this. 
so uh, the the whole thing is that you know i have always believed that you should under you know figure out the maths right you should figure out the maths so uh, you start a mission typically by doing a link budget and from the link budget you figure out what how much power it's going to consume and from that on you know you basically develop everything else one thing was very clear to me that our first mission is going to be a transponder okay there's nothing else that we could do um because you see it's you have to do this in steps right so if you say that you know in the first mission itself i am going to do a low earth orbit satellite which will have a you know a 3 degree stabilized platform and give you you know 60 cm resolution infrared imaging it's not going to work right so you have to basically do this and you have to keep flying that's the most important thing you know for any startup unless you're flying okay you're not in space business you're in business of simulations so uh, what is it that we can quickly make and which will actually give us experience which will you know put us uh, firmly in some sort of uh, place where you know you know what you've done so you have to pick up a mission which did not require dcs you have to pick up a mission which could be done on low power most importantly which could be done on one u because you know that's all you could afford because you didn't know where you were going wrong either right so given all this we thought that we should do uh, an analog fm transponder uh, and that also is partly because i have expertise there i mean i've built radios all my life right so uh, i could build radios very easily so you say okay this is what we are going to do and then you know um, you build these radios separately you try them out so the payload is worked out because you know radios are something that you can do except that i had a lot of i struggled a lot to have the receiver and transmitter on at the same time i really struggled a lot because uh, the transmitter keep kept overloading the receiver although they were at different frequencies you had to use something called a duplexer so finally we didn't manage to you know get that uh, piece in place but what happened and this was one thing which you know i was very glad is that i kept reaching out to people and asking them right i mean from krishna swami of uh, isro to you guys right and you and uh, sanjay nikanti and uh, uh, you know jerry buxton who's the vp technology at amsat uh, usa now us has this uh, policy of um, you know anything which is specific to space mission they'll not tell you they can't right they'll go to jail if they do that but they can they can discuss uh, gen- general stuff and publish stuff so they would point out to you know various things here and there etc etc so um, we put this entire thing together and for me uh, the, the important pieces of which i had no idea was the obc and the eps and we went wrong with the eps and i'll come back to that story in a bit so for the obc uh, it had to keep running all the time right and uh, thankfully i had some experience in that because in my internet telephony i had to write switches which could work for months and years without requiring a reset and i had learned how to do that so um it was almost like an embedded program i mean it used to run on run on linux but i remember that from 2003 to 2006 we did not reboot the system and the switch ran for 6 years um i i remember this because it sort of uh went round its clock right of that uh, pid comes right when you say you know what a ps uh, and you get the process status out it basically <laughs> 
clock rolled over so <laughs> i was thinking what's happening then i realized oh, it's been years since it's been running without reboot so um but you know again how and you know what processor do you pick so uh if you actually took a theoretical thing you would say you go to you know uh, mps 430 texas instrument or something which can run on a milliwatt you know it can run on a lime with two coins stuck in it or whatever but the fact was that you know in order to write it properly i needed to know the tools that we knew ourselves so i chose arduino uh which would consume you know 10 milliamps of current instead of you know 2 milliamps uh but i thought that you know it's better to have a tool chain which is reliable uh with everything else sorted out and especially where i can get people to work on it right so i mean arduino is something that every kid knows how to program i mean my son programs on arduino so um we chose stuff which is safe to take on as a technology and uh, what happened was when we were doing all the stuff and i over engineered the radios they were actually using huge shields because i said there was a desensing problem so we ran out of being able to use nicad batteries so the thing is this and i mean i never knew about all this stuff right i mean batteries who would care i mean batteries are the most boring things but they are actually so critical the eps is so critical to making a satellite that i had no idea so uh, you had to have these number of you know charge recharge cycles right so um, it would be best if i used simple nicad batteries because nicad has 10000 you know charge recharge cycles lipo has typically 1000 uh but nicads you know weigh a, a ton they are really really you know heavy batteries uh and they also charge very easily you actually don't require much of a charger a resistor you know connected to the solar panels with a diode in series is all you require and it will charge very forgiving in the way it charges it doesn't have to be heated uh if uh, to you know restart so it was very good but when we finally put this entire thing to weigh we found out that we were you know far beyond our uh power budget uh, you know weight budget and it was 70000 per kg at that time right from uh, space flight and that was something that we just could not afford to and you can't say okay, okay give me 200 grams more i mean you have to buy a second u which is another kg and that's a lot of money right it's about a crore so <laughs> there's no way we could afford it so about 4 weeks before we were to ship this we decided to switch to eps uh, which was based on lipo and you know we couldn't develop this in that much time so we bought it from endurosat and sad to say endurosat actually shipped a faulty unit to us it was not charging properly at all we went through a couple of charge cycles you know the battery was not coming up to full speed which is why actually the the exceed sat did not last a long time right or probably you know two months so um, but there's we had paid for our slot you know launch slot so <clears throat> um, we decided to fly we should not have in retrospect you know so when avais had this stuff right uh, and you know uh, he said i'm pulling back from launching a satellite pixel right so i reached out to him and i said good job you know i didn't have <laughs> courage to say that you know it's off 
So, um, but these are things that you learn, right? I mean, these are the stuff you learn and ultimately we had put a lot of pressure on ourselves to you know, get that going. But nevertheless, as a first, um, first space mission, right, which was built in my cellar, we didn't even have a proper office then. And everybody was learning, right? There was George, fabulous machinist. For the first time in his life, you know, he was building this and he was 70 plus. And later on, we figured that he was actually suffering from cancer and he, he expired subsequently, but he signed up. Okay, he taught me a lot of metal work. Uh, you know, Gurudev Panda just walked in saying that, you know, I need to be on the project. So he was there, you know. Sanjay was handling all the paperwork between space, you know, um, space flight and us. And then Sujata just, you know, stepped in. She was not part of our team at all, but she was the one who got us space flight actually, uh, you know, agreement in place. And she had a lot of critical project management. So she used to actually run the XP service pack uh, project. So she knew, you know, what it takes to get the stuff going. Uh, and, you know, Mahesh was kept fixing this stuff, etc. But the point was that we were always uh, pulling, you know, 20 hour days, uh, literally for a long time. And we didn't even have proper test instruments in place. So uh, we had to improvise. Uh, for example, to test desensing, you can't test desensing in a lab, right? So you have to simulate it. So what you do is you mount the satellite on a clear day. And this was a big problem because around that time, we had to deliver in October. It was monsoon every day like it is here today in Hyderabad. It was raining every day and we couldn't take our satellite out. So you take the satellite out, switch it on, deploy the antennas on a big long pole. And then you sit in a car with a, with a ground station with huge attenuators put on both the antennas and see if the signal loops through. So you, you know how much the free space uh, path is, you know, for example, from here to uh, the airport is, you know, 20 kilometers as a crow flies. And then you do your calculations and say that it's working or not working, et cetera, et cetera. So you do that. Uh, it took us almost two months to, you know, get those things in place. But it was, it was really exciting times. And I was reaching out to various people from Arun to Jerry to, uh, you know, whoever I could, you know, get my hands on uh, uh, or, you know, who give me a time of the day to figure out this stuff. Um, but ultimately, we did manage to do it. We kept things very simple. That's an important thing. We didn't optimize too much, which was, again, a very good thing that we did. So, yeah, uh, it was actually a, a, a great experience, really great experience. Uh, and thankfully, nobody lost their cool, so to say, right? I mean under pressure that happens very often and that actually spoils it even more. So that in effect is, you know, how we managed to get it done that quickly. Again, one of the interesting bits of all of this is there's also many firsts in all of this because, you know, nobody ever attempted to build a satellite, even a, a CubeSat, for example, in India at that point of time and, and flew it outside of India as well. Just in terms of the bureaucracy bit, I know that there's a lot of challenges even today in that, but so what was it like to, let's say, firstly operate on those frequencies, even if it is amateur band or whatever, but also to just take a satellite in a backpack, possibly fly to the US, integrate that. that yeah, I took it in a penguin case, let me clarify. <laughs> I didn't take it in a backpack. So um, 
well the thing is this that thankfully the ham radio frequencies are pre-allocated right so you they are pre-allocated and uh, they allocate the the coordination is done by international amateur radio union it's not done by wpc so wpc actually was completely out of picture out of the picture i mean they already have allocated these frequencies for ham satellites and the coordination is being done by somebody else so that is one thing which we didn't have to fight for now what happens is a lot of people use ham frequencies but the key thing of using ham frequencies is that any transmission that you make there <coughs> has to be publicly uh, receivable by everybody. I mean, the format has to be well known to everybody. And it should be available for use by all radio hams, right? So, uh, which this mission was, of course. So, we didn't have a problem there. But the sort of problems that we, I mean, we would have much preferred to launch it through ISRO. I mean, our second satellite went through ISRO, but we would have much preferred the first one to be with ISRO, but ISRO's hands were tied because... ISRO could only bill in dollars, right? I mean, they had never run into a you know, situation where an Indian company walks up to them and says, you know, launch my satellite. I mean, everything that ISRO launched, which belonged to India, was belonged to Indian government. So there was no transaction, so to say. So that actually, uh, and we actually spent a lot of time, probably about seven, eight months, trying to, you know, get this out. And to be fair to everybody in ISRO, that they worked really hard trying to you know get this thing out but you know i mean that's the way government works it's it's not because of a lack of empathy but just the way the structure is that you know and and it remains the same even today i mean there's no further clarity you know with all the uh, meetings and uh, you know all kinds of stuff that we have managed to you know put out as papers and policy documents etc we're still right there. You know, if it comes to a space mission, you'll still have problems clearing. I, I don't know how, you know, other missions are doing it, but... And what about, let's say, you know, taking the satellite out in a penguin case? Uh, were there any questions on all of this? Or people just said, oh, we don't really... Well, there were no questions at, uh, at the Indian end, right? But in uh, when I landed in Seattle, I had a very funny situation because... Uh, and in Dubai too. So what happens is, uh, I mean, you know, people who've actually seen us, a CubeSat or any satellite for that matter, will know that there is a remove before flight pin, right? So you basically <clears throat> arm the satellite, so to say. And you, you know, once the satellite is fixed inside the, the spacecraft, there's a pin that you pull out. And then what happens is the moment the satellite ejected out, it sort of starts working. So there's this remove before flight pin and it actually had a big tag which said you know remove before flight so when when i was you know coming from <laughs> changing the flight over from the um, indian aircraft the aircraft which came to dubai in dubai you have to change to the U us craft right so the the customs opened this and there was this satellite there which had a big thing which said you know remove before flight so this guy thought that this was remove before putting it onto the next aircraft and he reached out to pull it and I had to sort of jump and you know grab it and as I grabbed it they thought something violent was going to happen so everybody was you know with their action stations but thankfully I mean, nobody fired at me but I explained to them that this is you know meant for somewhere else and in Seattle there was another very interesting experience I had so they had given me these custom papers right as you bring the spacecraft in you have to show it 
at the customs. So I went up to uh, the, the immigration office and I said, you know, I'm carrying this. He said, oh, we know all about this. So I said, how do you know about this? He says, today you are the fifth person to have come in here because there are a lot of people bringing in their CubeSats to be integrated into the space flights, you know, um, the, the deployers that day. So we had a lot of people and I met uh, Jerry there for the first time. And a lot of people, you know, there was a Thailand uh, group as well. So, you know, we were all discussing our own, you know, stories. Then we all integrated ourselves. Then we went out. So uh, there's interest, interesting episodes at the customs in Dubai and uh, US rather than in India. Yeah, I mean, always uh, exciting in all of this. But, you know, you did this all on your own accord at the end. And there's a lot of people, of course, who want to start these companies. And, you know, now venture capital and other things have uh, matured in India. But, I mean, I've been thinking about this for many years as to what can the government do or ISRO do or any of this at the end. I would love to hear from you, you know, if you see any role for government in all of this in supporting, you know, any of these efforts in one way or the other. Or, you know, even giving market access in one way or the other to companies at the end. What would be like your thoughts on all of this? You know, I think uh, one key problem uh, that's, that's space missions, you know, I mean, I'm not talking about launch vehicles, but space missions face in India are primarily to do with two regulations. One is regulations uh, with spectrum. And the second are regulations around making spacecrafts and aircrafts. Okay. Uh, for example, in the US, uh, even if you do know, you're not the age to drive a car, you can get a license to fly an aircraft. Right? They're fairly straightforward, even if not simple, rules of how you can make your own rockets, for example. Right? So, if you see all people who are working at SpaceX, uh, you know, on the technical side, they're all who as kids have, you know, built their own model rockets. And some of these model rockets go a couple of kilometers into space, right? So they knew what motors were about, what's the difference between the solid propellant and a liquid propellant, right? And, you know, what are the ways to control it? I mean, these people have had hands-on experience. And unless as kids you have made it, you know, when you had time to explore it or during college, and then you come to work, otherwise you'll not have an intuitive feel to this. So if you want to get this ecosystem going 10 years from now, you have to deregulate it today. And unless you deregulate it, people will not be able to experiment, right? So, and people will experiment for the heck of it, not as a part of business. So what happens in India usually is that somebody works at ISRO, figures out how things work, then they leave ISRO, then come out and then, you know, form their own company to do it. So they've used ISRO's time to, you know, basically develop the technology. But on the other hand, if you just allow people to do stuff, that will itself, you know, create um, a lot of people with interest in it. Right now, I mean, you can't make your own drone, leave alone a spacecraft. Even an indoor drone you can't make as per the current rules. So I think you have to deregulate. That I think is important. The moment you say you have to apply for a permission, then it becomes really difficult. I mean, you know, the amount of, uh, you know, problems that you guys had to even fly a balloon all right, leave alone a spacecraft was phenomenal. I mean, you're just trying to put up a weather balloon and you have to get a DGCA clearance and this clearance and that clearance and that balloon is like a party balloon, right? You can leave a party balloon and nobody will ask you a question, but the moment you're putting a 10 gram payload onto it, then suddenly all these things, you know, come up. So I think the key thing is to deregulate. 
to allow people to experiment because unless they experiment they will not develop the confidence of you know building these big missions and on the other hand people who are interested in the space should start building right so you don't have to build big stuff but for example you build epss you build obcs you build radios you build all these stuff right i mean uh, unless you have taken a solar panel and charged a battery with it you will not know how the battery works right so hands on experience is very important because entire space industry is based on tribal knowledge right very few books and even if there are books you don't understand those books because you need people with experience to tell you how to do it and uh, you know one of the things that we talked earlier is uh, if this the timing of the whole industry is off or uh, you know are we too late or all of this and i believe that there's still a massively big opportunity the question is people have not really thought through how big this industry can get i've been talking about this uh, for a few months now on trying to see which applications in this country can be unlocked in a unique way that makes this industry very big so for me you know the problem is that uh, we actually haven't explored any application that integrates into the markets directly that uses space infrastructure in one way or the other so the problem that i see is uh, when people in isro are building missions they're building it to prove out a particular application that the application itself can be done from space so for example let's take the whole uh, potential fishing zone or even you know uh, fishing boat tracking using space and so on what happens is that isro says oh we identified this mission because there's a anthropological need there's a safety need there's whatever need and those people who are you know whatever anthropologists or sociologists or somebody like that says okay you know this is a requirement in the society and then it gets raised to a mission level planning where somebody says okay we can build this mission that can solve this particular problem somebody goes and says i'll build this because i am interested in this hardware and i'm interested in this application and what happens uh, with all my research that i've done and all of this is that they build that out they prove it out on the ground but they never operate it at scale so you do it in a way that you say that 200 fishing boats are now operating all of this but 200 fishing boats are not the you know fishing community in india right so you'll need a you know 100 satellites to service a country in india right so isro is in the business of uh, proving applications are possible in space but not operating at at scale oh yeah actually the, their name says it all it's a space research organization it's like a university right so uh, you don't expect a university professor even a professor of marketing to be able to run a marketing department of a big company i mean they are only theoreticians you require people uh, with entrepreneurship to be able to take on these risky ventures and fail right i mean 9 out of 10 of space startups are going to fail good for them i mean you know i i don't see why they shouldn't fail right i mean that's what venture capital is for that you know you basically take high risk bets and if things work they work if they don't work they don't work right and then you move on to another because i mean as a vc fund you invested in 10 companies and you know that at least one of them is going to succeed and will cover up for the next the other nine so uh, i don't think that isro will be able to do that and and the fact is this isro is basically into launch vehicles business okay uh satellites is not that business because earlier you had one satellite mounted on one launch vehicle but now you can have 200 satellites mounted on that 
So ISRO does not have the scale to do 200 missions for every launch. I mean, they were before COVID, they were launching twice a month, right? But they can't be doing 400 missions per month. So somebody else has to step in. And the fact is that the cost of the mission has to come down to such a level that, you know, you can basically look at it saying that, you know, okay, it's like buying a car or something, right? I mean, car costs about 50 lakhs, a good car or whatever, or a small house, right? An apartment. And for that much amount, if you can actually put a mission out and see whether it works or not, I think that's where um, you'll see a lot of ideas being tried out and then thrown away saying that, you know, okay, this works, that doesn't work, et cetera, et cetera. So we just do not have the infrastructure in India to be able to do that. And that actually involves uh, access to uh, launch launches at a very low cost. Uh, by cost, I just don't mean financial cost, but even bureaucratic cost, right? So um, how easy is it if you have a small mission, let's say 3U mission, to be able to fill up a form, pay up money and say, you know, okay, in the next three months, I'm going to put this mission up. And this, this, and this, the timeline has also become very critical because what happens is a lot of college kids take on a project and if your launch date is three years away, you're not going to hang around until then. You, you'll, you know, move on. So um, that's actually a big problem that a lot of kids want to build stuff but they simply cannot wait long enough to get a launch slot. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when I look at the market situation today, I mean, reflecting back on all the last 15 years of trying to do all of this, I feel like uh, there is uh, one thing that we've totally missed that people are starting to unlock today, which is um, looking at which are markets that can use space-based intelligence that have never been addressed in India. The problem that I see having, you know, now worked in Europe and other places is that you need to understand culturally the problems of the place to solve it in a way that the technology fits that culture in solving that problem. So as an example, right? So we have 150 million acres of farmland in India. And you look at uh, the penetration of credit in farmers it's still not nowhere close to anywhere, you know, where advanced countries are in formal institutional credit penetration, right? So you look at uh, what has happened with respect to digitization of farmland in India. We're nowhere close to anywhere around the world as well because, you know, farmland is broken down. It's now an average, uh, you know, farm is like less than two acres of land or something like that. And then you look at uh, regulation, for example, RBI regulation on lending, for example, right? 19% of lending has to go into agri-sector in traditional banking. And that's a rule. And you look at the challenges that the banks face. They don't have actually a way of de-risking investment, unlike you know using a Sybil score for somebody who is borrowing money or whatever, right? For farming at the end. So now the fascinating thing here is that if you just take the credit rating that you can provide for farming sector in India, the market size can be more than a billion dollars big every year by building, you know, EO-based, Earth Observation-based data products that can de-risk a lot of the investment, including climate models and, you know, many things like that, right? So, unfortunately, we have not really had people who 
understand these local problems in the country come up in a way where you can plug these gaps and work directly in a b2b ecosystem to solve those problems that businesses face that are market tight right so you go to 20 different banks and tell them i will help you de-risk you know like your investment in all of this and you i'll give you a way of uh, telling you which are risky investments to make when it comes to lending and it's the same for insurance it's the same for you know microfinance and many other things so talking about markets that are completely you know ripe for like disruption in all of these things and you can talk about uh, you know it's not just earth observation you talk about uh, communications as well i mean logistics uh, at the end you know how much of uh, even iot or other such logistics solutions can be explored for completely b2b solutions it's not even it is not even a b2c solution right so these are unfortunately like things that i've not seen people like explore in india at this point of time and unfortunately i guess the problem is that we need two communities of people that i see to participate in our ecosystem one is people who are not from the space industry who understand markets directly and the problems there exactly right right so that is one sort of a people the second sort of people is uh, the traditional software operators in the sector like tcs or hcl or you know whatever uh, infosys or others because today what i see is that these guys are running the infrastructure for every different industry around the world right oil and gas airports whatever uh, and they understand how that space operates and if and you know what are the requirements of those companies and customers in software right and so we are in the space industry operating independently and the moment we are able to link up with you know what science is doing or what you know infosys is doing or whatever for an in customer you know who is an oil and gas customer or a, you know bp or whatever shell or somebody else and we are able to tell them that i'm able to give you some comms or some eo product that adds value to your customer right. you know that's something that i see that we haven't even touched in this country very true i, I mean uh, not just our country most of the countries i would say right but more particularly with india and more particularly i think because of the situation in india of you know certain types of infrastructure etc cetera, etc cetera, right so what you're saying is very right because given the sort of you know intelligence which uh space can generate whether it's infrastructure projects as you're saying agriculture is a huge one that a lot of stuff can be done which is not being done and um isro will isro is not really the uh they are not the ones who will do it so for example when you're talking about agriculture it will be the agriculture university which has to figure out this stuff right that um i can apply data this way and i need this data so uh there will be then you know are the companies which step in because see what happens now is until now we have been extremely excited about the fact that you know you can build a satellite that is over right that's over 10 years ago so uh, building a satellite is not a big deal launching it is not a big deal what is a big deal is as you're you know identifying it is somebody who knows that i can put this sensor or that transponder or you know whatever right this is a stuff that i can put in as a payload so it's it's really you know like 
moving from an embedded system to uh, you know saying okay i've got high level languages available on the computer now i'm going to build applications for your business so we have to graduate to there right i mean we we can't just keep getting excited by the fact that we have an 8 bit microprocessor which can you know switch on leds and switch off leds you know the, the altair 8008 is gone now it's a time for an operating system of sorts which is already in place you know in terms of cubesat in terms of being able to buy stuff etc etc to be able to build stuff which actually delivers lot of value and one of the things that we figured out you know is that um if you go to you know for example agriculture department of telangana state right and you say that uh, why don't we do this on sat uh, with with space they imagine that it's a 500 crore project so if you actually tell them you know but actually for you know 2 crores we can have one space mission going and you know you can prove this then this person says oh that's within my own budget and i can you know approve it so you see that you have to go under that radar of where affordability is is so easy and even you've de-risked it so one problem is that most of the indians are extremely inefficient as entrepreneurs uh, when it comes to their missions so a stuff which would take you know about 100000 dollars for someone else to do you will go and quote some 50 crores and the customer will walk away so you have to be a real realistic in terms of being able to quickly deliver that's the key thing right being able to quickly deliver a space mission and do it cheaply i mean um, i was looking the other day of how much elon musk has invested into spacex he's he has invested 30 million dollars right 30 million dollars is 200 crores that's really cheap to get a launch vehicle off the ground literally right so um one of the things that we have to learn from startups abroad is how to do it cheaply this is a big myth that indians do stuff uh, you know inexpensively no we are one of the most expensive people when it comes to entrepreneurship we pay ourselves big salaries our real estate is one of the most costliest in the world right i mean in hyderabad it will cost you bomb to actually you know own a bungalow where you can put up an antenna antenna right i mean this is so the the cost of running startups in india is huge uh and i think that you have to figure out and then also figure out how to deliver these missions very inexpensively so i think that if you do then you'll find customers whether in within india or outside india but that i think is also something that the entrepreneurship has to look at very you know some soul searching is needed there again an interesting subject on uh, you know some subtle things that i've kind of realized over time especially is unfortunately nobody in india who is an end user of anything space pays for it so what i mean for it is that uh, you know from what i know at least or what i've at least demystified over the time if the ministry of agriculture wants to monitor every crop in this country for example right so unfortunately the ministry of agriculture is not paying for that data yeah. it is asking isro for a requirement saying that you know we as a ministry of agriculture want to have whatever food security in this country and so on and we want to monitor all of this and essentially what is happening at least my understanding of what is happening is that the end user which is the ministry of agriculture which is again a government body will go to isro and say that uh, you are the space guys and you know we want this service of being able to monitor all of this 
and then the guys in isro have a special division you know program planning division or whatever in that sense and they will say that okay you have this uh, thing where you want to monitor 150 million acres of land every year and whatever dry and wet and whatever land at the end and then they will translate that back into how many satellites this is what is the resolution of the satellite what band it is and so on and the way it is working is that isro says that this satellite costs so much so much so many crores in terms of the number of satellites and so many launches and the launch vehicle costs you know 200 crores per vehicle and satellite costs to you know 500 crore per satellite and they'll say for this monitoring service you will have to then put together five launch vehicles and 10 satellites which is whatever 2000 crores at the end and that gets passed on to the finance ministry saying your own you know ministry of agriculture is asking for this service so if you pay me 2000 crores i will be able to launch 10 satellites on five rockets and you know the end user there so the problem that i see is that governments government markets are locked for entrepreneurs because uh, end users are not paying at the end and so you have a way where essentially you cannot go and sell this to end users in the country right because this is the difference in us and india so uh, i think i mean but for instance india is one of the largest customers of planet planet labs right Uh, for the defense needs surveillance needs i mean for all sorts of stuff they are doing that so what happens with the indian government spe- specifically is that if you have something which is working then they'll just start buying so the idea is not to wait for them to give you a contract but to go out and build some system right and uh, and just start retailing it see the whole idea of a product is that you build something that people don't know that they want okay when you are selling them something that they know they want then you are already in a market right where there is competition where there is no innovation where there are big players and it's most probably a service right for example people know that they want an accounting software they know that they want an inventory control software or whatever right but if you are looking at something very innovative you will have to build it first i mean planet planet labs didn't have any uh, customers to begin with right i mean they launched some six or seven satellites three u satellites and then started you know once the data started coming in then the customers came in or you look at um, what is that kind of or uh hokai 360 is it yeah hokai 360 it's just three satellites right i mean they are fairly small satellites that 12 u satellites just three of them built pretty cheaply okay uh, bob maguire the founder of that is a good close friend of mine radio ham uh, with a lot of experience in amsat i think he was vp technology there uh, so he actually learned a lot of stuff about building small missions there and then he used exactly the same thing to replicate it and he just offered a service where he could map provide a map of radio transmitters terrestrial radio transmitters whether they walkie talkies or tanks or you know uh, whoever right ships going around etc etc and that has become a really a key technology now and a lot of people have you know so i think the whole idea of a product is to bet on the fact that people will require this second thing is that now there are companies which are as big as nations who will want this right i mean um, you look at a company like roche or you know erstwhile monsanto these people have a huge stake in knowing how agriculture is doing 
right or for example for that matter geo now right i mean where do you buy what from you know how is the crop coming up etc so they will require this stuff and i think the whole idea is to uh, build it primarily for the private market and you have to build it first because these people are all legacy businesses they will never appreciate what it can do until you show them what it can do right so there's this thing you know i read about a wall street guy who said that he is walking down uh on wall street and he stopped this is in 70s late 70s to see that on a shop window there's this apple 2 which is running busy calc where it could it was just 60 rows i mean uh, 60 columns by 24 rows and he said that i used to spend weeks doing this stuff and he walked in and said i'll pay you any amount i need that so it's like that that the aha moment for them will come when they see the data they see oh wow this is what it can do i mean for example keyhole right they build this entire um you know uh, what's now google earth so until you saw it you had no idea why you needed it but once you saw it then you said yeah this is what i need i mean every real estate developer needs it now yeah i mean that is why i think that uh you know mapping these things out and uh, moving further i think that's where we'll see a lot of entrepreneurs in india succeed uh, in all of this um, i mean just to kind of uh, you know give you a sense of some of the new work that we are uh, trying to do we're starting a think tank uh, it'll be announced soon on uh, uh, and the goal of the think tank is to basically match management research with uh, space as a sector and the goal of the one of the elements of the this is one of the elements of the think tank that we will have scientific statistical evidence being built from primary research that will actually tell policy makers how big can this market be so you bring in a management researcher who is focused on let's say agriculture or let's say fishing or infrastructure or any other sector because they're not biased about space they are experts in that particular sector and then they can talk about inefficiencies that are local to india and then you could tell them what is possible to be done from space and they could then say okay these are the inefficiencies that we can actually solve and the size of this market in this particular segment is you know x y and z i mean it can be done two ways one is to let's you know call people in who are working in agriculture and say that this is what space can do and others to listen to them right so you say come and tell us you know what you, what are the challenges which you think might be solvable by you know applying space tech yeah i mean it's both ways of course in all of this but the problem is that uh, i think that you know reason why we don't see as much support as you know let's say the software industry gets with you know government supporting a lot of that is we don't really have any evidence that says how big this industry can get yes very true very true right see th- this will become a sort of a support industry i don't think that space in itself will be an industry right but it's like saying you know uh, manufacturing pcs so manufacturing pcs is not the big industry software is the big industry right i mean if you look at intel's market cap intel powers every computer in the world right but intel's uh, market cap is a fraction of that of microsoft so um, i don't think that you know launch vehicles and people who build space missions themselves are there they should relegate themselves back 
and you know put app developers you know up front and by app developers i don't mean android app developers but who will develop space applications understanding the domain so they don't have to bother about how the spacecraft will work whether you know it can do three axis wipe text or not etc etc i mean that all we'll take care of right you just go and build your mission uh and then we'll ruggedize it we'll launch it we'll maintain it for you we'll you know put it on space etc so i think that's the important thing to know that you know you're comfortably well off it can be done cheaply it can be done reliably and you know we'll be able to do that if you can figure out what the heck is it that you want it to do right so that's the key thing and the most money of course you can make is when you are closest to the market and the end user you will not make a lot of money you know like profitably when you are uh, in the current status of the market is that as things get standardized in either you know the launch market being organized or the spacecraft market being organized all of that is already being done so which means that the standardization and the competition there for just the hardware itself you know makes the profitability and the volume to be you know distributed among people yeah. and you are not going to be you know building 10000 satellites you're not going to be you know going from building 10 to 10000 satellites yeah. in a year in, in so uh, unfortunately i think you know this is where we have not seen people do still a lot of things and it's also the scale of problems because you know when you identify problems like um, you know air pollution or uh, you know water or any other thing right so food and others we have not really like plugged a lot of the space based solutions that can solve problems you don't even understand those domains right that's that's the tragedy that uh, the space scientists are so enamored with their own technology that they have not bothered to dip into what are the challenges and possibilities in other domains right for example how many space uh, engineers even understand communications well fundamentals of communication and you know what's possible what's the latest happening etc or for that matter you know digital signal processing as applied to images uh, i mean you know uh, what what are the possibilities of image processing i mean what, what is the sort of intelligence that you can get out of it this is a stuff that actually uh this the the people working in space technology have to figure out right then they will be able to build really you know uh, targeted solutions because if we just say i know how to build an obc i don't know how to build an eps i know how to put a 3u together now you tell me you know will you buy it of course they'll not buy it you know why would they buy it but if you say that you know i will tell you what is the water level in all the farms of india without have sending people out there then you're talking business right so you figure out how you're going to do it you know whether you're going to do it through ground penetrating radars you're going to do it through foliage uh, whatever it is you know but that's actually the key thing and this is what has to be ha- has to happen now you wrap up this entire business of being able to build space missions and get out in the field and learn the technology of other fields so that this can be applied there otherwise all you're saying is i'm a c programmer okay and i can build you know i can write linked lists and i can write trees and i can do you know bubble sort so pay pay me money they're not going to pay you money to do that right they're going to pay you money to solve their problems so i'm going to put you into a tough spot of being a fortune teller so <laughs> uh, i would love to hear from you from whatever we have seen in the last two or three years there's a lot of things that have of course happened you know eight years from now eight years ahead, before nobody cared about this sector so much as uh, you know what 
attention it gets today. And there's, you know, 50 new companies that have been formed in the last maybe three or four years. So we've solved a lot of problems in the sector, starting from, you know, venture capital being available, institutional financing happening uh, with a lot of the companies, uh, regulatory changes starting to take place and all of this. Would love to hear from you which sort of companies you see succeeding in India and which sort are not yet built and which sort will make it really big. So um, I think there'll be two sorts of companies. One will be companies which are looking at enterprise space, right? Which will basically do uh, what you're talking about. For example, agriculture being sold to, you know, big, I mean, there are fairly large agriculture companies in India with fertilizer companies and et cetera, et cetera. So uh, there'll be a lot of enterprise space tech, but really the exciting thing will come from, I don't have any, any other word for it, the P2P space market. And the P2P space will basically do to uh, internet what internet did to the legacy businesses. So what will happen, for example, is that you it will bypass a lot of local regulations. This is the big problem which is going to happen now. For example, you couldn't earlier access any uh, remote sensing data without taking NRSS permission, but Google Earth completely, you know, uh, voided that entire business and everybody had access to stuff and, you know, you could see your own house and stuff like that because of Google Earth. Uh, <clears throat> but there are going to be even far more personalized uh, startups in just Earth observation itself, right? And these will cater to smaller customers, for example, like Planet, right? I mean, you can ask Planet to give you a daily snapshot of whatever project is happening somewhere else or how your own farm is doing, which is, you know, 500 kilometers away from where you are for pennies. Uh, same thing with, you know, financial transactions, let's say, you know, a lot of people are talking about it. But for example, if there's a Bitcoin satellite somewhere, which can do transactions, uh, there are uh, IoT. So all this will actually, I think, uh, put up a whole generation of new devices which are connected, which do not depend on legacy. And by legacy, I mean internet or even 4G and 5G uh, to be connected across. So uh, I'm very bullish on that coming through, uh, which will sort of, you know, uh, democratize data at a completely different level and in a completely different way. Right. And... Um... Maybe some last questions uh, we've already recorded for like more than, uh, you know, close to 90 minutes now. So thank you for the time. So we've seen a lot of young people build new companies and, you know, uh, not so experienced folks coming from different sectors, uh, stepping into the community to build these companies out. Uh, and that's something, you know, that's probably unique uh, to India than any other part of the world uh, recently, all of this. So... Would love to hear from you, you know, there's a lot of young people who, you know, contact me or contact others in this sector saying we are really passionate about this sector and want to get in and, you know, they want to get their hands dirty in getting to do all of these things that there's not much of a support system ecosystem existing for a lot of these people to really step into the sector in a way uh, that can really affect a lot more inventors, a lot more creative people to being in the sector, right? So for an average teenager who's now going to be, you know, interested in this sector or genuinely, what would you advise 
in terms of uh, them being able to as young adults you know be inventors or be creators to come into the sector see i think the most important thing is to keep building that's the most important thing i mean you know i mean i see a lot of people and this is a thing which is very specific to india they just think about it but they don't do anything about it right so of course it's very difficult to you know find a launch for your spacecraft but it doesn't take such so much money to build it right build a prototype okay it doesn't matter that you have to buy space grade uh, solar cells you know buy solar cells of amazon or wherever right but unless you've built a system where a solar panel is charging a battery and that battery is running some radio radio is cost a couple of dollars now right so for probably 50 60 dollars you can actually build a complete space system together and you know put it on your rooftop you know fly it on a balloon or do whatever but i think it's very important to have that hands on experience and unless you have that hands on experience all your um i mean it's just an imaginary world that you're spinning up so i think that's the important thing to actually gain lot of hands on experience i mean for example a uh, lot of them talk about these earth observation satellites right and they go on and on about the fact that you know uh, this resolution and that resolution and this telephoto you have to fit a telephoto lens onto a raspberry pi camera and see what it can point at right uh, add a servo motor to it or buy a surveillance camera you know mount which can you know pan and tilt a camera and see where you can point it's going to be an education worth half a million dollars to know how crude that entire mechanism is right i mean you think you'll be able to get something like 0.1 degree accuracy you're not going to get that accuracy i'm just talking about picking one thing out right so i think it's very important that all the young people acquire skills to be able to build stuff very important okay however primitive however simple and it's best that you build primitive stuff okay build battery chargers Uh, build solar battery chargers build obcs build embedded systems uh build radios find out actually how much range it gives you so i mean these are all the things that are parts and parcel of space tech and you can acquire these very easily and they ought to be acquired even if you are not going to be a techie here even if you say okay i'm going to you know face a customer it's important for you to realize what it takes to build this stuff yeah absolutely and i think it's uh, an exciting time despite you know me we are you know being possibly a little bit later see this is the most exciting time to be a builder or a maker as they are called these days right you can buy anything from any part of the world and it will arrive on your desk within a week if government of india you know agrees because that's another big hole you can't get anything i mean you've stopped aliexpress from i mean you know us from buying from aliexpress the entire maker market of india survived on aliexpress and they have nowhere to go but i mean that's another i don't want to you know start that discussion at the end of the podcast but the fact is that we can get components from complete spacecrafts to nuts and bolts right i mean for example the spring which is which goes on the bottom of the cubesat it's available from macmasters for 2 dollars you can buy that stuff it will be on your desk it will come in an envelope right for 10 dollars you'll get it here. so i think it's important to play around with this especially if you're an engineer uh and to i mean that's the only way to 
learn the stuff and once you learn the stuff then you know how much it actually costs to build the stuff so i mean building stuff uh, being able to get money out of this will come a couple of years down the line you cannot think that you will do a startup today and within 3 years or 4 years realize revenues that's not going to happen maybe final question you've you know built and launched two assets up into space where do you see yourself you know using all of this experience so far and doing things further yeah uh, you know personally speaking i would like to get out of exit space as soon as i can okay because my the originally the job that i had signed up for was to do technical diligence on companies that we would invest in and uh, we ended up by running a company on its own but the company has a team in place i hope that this team will be able to do the future i mean actually the current uh we have two missions you know all ready for launch it's just that uh, isro is not flying much these days so the third mission was i have i have not even touched it i have not even you know except to do review of the source code i have had no part in that one at all so i don't see myself doing much what i would like to do very late in life is to learn more maths because really math maths is at the basis of all this right and um i have been you know going around to debates and quizzes etc when i should have been you know sitting in the class and you know getting my math sorted out so that is actually one big gap i have in my own you know uh, knowledge and i hope to be able to cover that up quickly so that is my personal goal within space tech to understand this technology from maths perspective because that really is a key thing right i mean how do you predict uh, an orbit i don't know i think you know i'll use g predict to predict it but i need to know how that equation works i need to know you know how you can uh, get one of the three constellation satellites to go into a slightly elliptical orbit what does it take to do that i mean you know uh, what's the software how does the pid work and and adcs so at the end of the day entire space science is maths it's not very complicated maths by the way it's fairly simple maths i mean you know you're not using tensors here or whatever or you know any of those things but it's simple maths but some i mean you need to know figure that out also that that's my personal goal here to be out of exceed space satellite as it's called now and to be able to look at more companies and be able to you know invest in them and you know mentor them so maybe just to close off uh, would love to at least for the crowd in hyderabad uh, for you to talk a little bit about the radio activities here and how possibly they can be involved oh yeah so we have a lamakana match radio club which meets every second uh sunday here at lamakana at 3 pm lamakana you can find on google maps so drop in here you'll see a lot of people who are building earth stations people who are you know thinking of building satellites people who are doing radio work and also people who are doing other stuff i mean you know building their own 3d printers uh they are builders makers they are software hackers all sorts of people gather here so it, it it's an interesting crowd uh, young and old all mixed people mixed together there are people who are just going to uh, second hand markets and picking up you know vintage stuff so um, that's actually a good place to begin with if you want to start building stuff you know even if you are trying to get woodwork going or uh, from there to building satellites so i invite you all to you know come and join the lamakana metro radio club 3 pm every second sunday at lamakana
Farhan, always uh, fascinating to talk, you know, to talk to you and, uh, you know, always so many things to kind of learn and, uh, I mean, it's very inspiring always to kind of talk to you on all the whole array of things that you managed to do. You guys have been a big inspiration for me. I should put it on record, right? <laughs> Exceed Space wouldn't have been here if it wasn't for you guys and the conversations I've had with you before we started this out. Thank you for listening in to this episode of the New Space India podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share this episode with anyone you believe will enjoy listening to it. You'll be able to find the New Space India podcast in any of the podcasting platforms that you may be using, including Apple, Google, Spotify, YouTube, and others. Do subscribe to the podcast in case you want to receive new episodes automatically. I'm grateful if you're able to leave a rating for the podcast, which will help others discover it. Thank you for listening in again, and the next episode will be out in the next two weeks as usual.